Welcome to the Rethinking Revenue Podcast, where CEOs, revenue leaders, investors, and go-to-market experts share hard-fought lessons of success and failure as they've prepared their businesses to evolve beyond the status quo. Now, let's meet your co-hosts, Ed Porter and James Roris. Ed is a fractional chief revenue officer and founder of Blue Chip CRO. He helps CEOs fix revenue problems inside marketing, sales, and customer success teams. James is a CRO's secret weapon, creator of Wins Selling. He helps revenue leaders simplify sales success Success by developing cross-functional go-to-market teams and establishing certified sales pipelines. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the show. All right. We are here with another exciting episode of the Rethinking Revenue podcast. And with me, as always, is my friend, my colleague, James. I've come up with so many other words to describe you. I think I need to come up with some more unique ones. So we need to take this offline at some point and talk about what other adjectives, what other nouns, whatever words we can use to describe our relationship. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we are here together with another with an episode. We're happy to have our guest here, Callan Harrington. Callan is a, a, a person that I met through a sales networking association through AISP. He is a consummate professional, a great colleague, a mediocre friend, and a terrible <laughs> cigar smoker. In that order is a uh, is what I'm going to leave you with. So, Callan, why don't you tell everyone about yourself, set some wrongs that I may have said, and uh, tell us a little bit about your company and the companies you or the clients you serve. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for the audience to know. I, I became a mediocre friend when you found out I didn't smoke cigars. So, just the <laughs> hey, state cause of cause and effect. Cause and effect. It's important to show those causal relationships. A hundred percent. I just didn't want to hide behind it. I think it's yeah, fair to good. Say no. own it. Yeah. So, uh, well, one, I appreciate the introduction. Um, so, yeah, my name is Callan Harrington, and uh, I founded Flash Growth. You know, my career uh, in, in kind of a nutshell was, um, you know, I think some of, one of the best things that ever happened to me was I couldn't get a corporate finance job out of college because I would have been absolutely terrible at it. And I fell into sales like so many of us did and really fell in love with it and then found myself into the startup world. And one of the things I joke around about is I've been fortunate to be part of three exits within that space. But on the flip side of that, I've had three total flops and uh, mm-hmm. I learned 10 times more in those total flops than I did the exits. And after the most recent one, uh, I knew I wanted to start a business at some point, didn't really know what it was. And I had to just push myself in the deep end because I'm just not somebody that could build on the side and started to get some consulting agreements as I was vetting out a SaaS or an insurtech tech company. And I love the work that I was doing and really the, the coaching, advising, and then RevOps consulting and followed that. And two and a half years later, here we are. Outstanding. So let's talk more about um, exactly uh, what you do and the kind of businesses that you do it for. Yeah. So I, I talk about, we, we help companies at different early stages. So zero to one, one to 10, and I'll say 10 plus when it comes to revenue of the companies. And in the zero to one, that is much more coaching, advising, working with the founder on sales coaching, sales advising, growth coaching and such. One to 10 million is is helping companies transition from founder sales to what I'll call professional sales. So how do you hire the first couple sales reps? What do you look for? How do you hire your first VP of sales? How do you scale that team? And the 10 plus is really on the RevOps side. So that's where we're doing you know, HubSpot, uh, Salesforce implementations, but really looking across the whole buyer's journey from the customer success platforms, marketing automation platforms, all the way up to the business intelligence platforms and, and automating as much as we can on there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I think it's really cool that um, you're, it, it's interesting to, to hear how professionals segment markets, right? Because you're looking at patterns and you're identifying groups of folks that um, you're tuned to serve well. 
that one to 10 million range is a pretty big, it's a pretty big jump. Are there, are there segments within that range that you find entrepreneurs and the business, the business that you serve reach, you know, either, either segments or inflection points that they reach as they, as they scale from one to 10? You know, it's a great question, James. When I when I kind of look at it, if if I pull it out without kind of talking about the revenue numbers, and I'm not saying anything that other people haven't said before, but you know, essentially you've got before you've got a product, you're looking for that problem market fit. What is a problem that I can build a, a product for? And then when you're going to zero to one, it's all about finding that product market fit. And then I, I promise you, I'm going to answer your question. Um, from one to ten, you're starting to build that go to market fit. And as part of that go-to-market fit, when you first are coming out of product market fit, a lot of times what I see with companies is it's we've got some repeatability, but it goes in big ups and downs. And it's not you're not really eating out that curve very much. So the first part of that one to ten is how can we just show a little bit more repeatability? And then as that starts to get more predictable and we've got a better idea on kind of that that up into the right curve. Now we're building processes to really scale. How do we throw fuel on the fire within this team? Because we've got a good idea on what we're doing. And that's typically when you start to see companies raise their Series B, Series C to put real uh, real resources behind it. Yeah, outstanding. I think uh, because of the name of the, the podcast and our focus on rethinking revenue, um, I'd love it if you could uh, share with the audience just some of the mindsets that you run into. Like what's going through uh, the mindset of that founder as they're considering these inflection points, these transition points, um, the ones that you run into the most most often and, and how you help folks think through the process of, you know, I guess based on my own experience, what I, what I see is that uh, a founder can become very attached to how they got to where they are. And it takes some time for them to realize what they did to get to where they are, won't get them where they have to go. And I'm looking for that moment, that inflection point, how you, what you, what you run into and how you help people think through that. Yeah, good question. And when I think, you know, zero to one, and, and as you know, because I know you guys both have a ton of experience in this space, zero to one, one to 10 and, and everything beyond. But when you think like zero to one, so often, unless that founder has a sales background, it's really just it's really just how you would coach a sales rep. And and we're working with the founder on, you know, let's set up the basic process. Let's set up the discovery call. Let's set up the, the demo call. How are we going through this? And going through pipeline reviews and and really coaching on here's how to move this deal forward and things like that. So the founders really at that point, what I've seen, especially if they're anything that they're somewhat on the technical side and don't have that sales background, like I mentioned, it's really just the A, Bs and Cs of of, of sales in general. And then similar to what you mentioned, they start to uh, build that process. They they see that. Now, what I'll typically see is founders will go one of two ways. Uh, one. They, they'll get get it to that point. They'll go out, they'll hire the absolute best uh, VP of sales they possibly can, someone that's typically been in the industry for a really long time, may have been at their at their competitor, um, and, it's, and everything looks great on paper, but they didn't really test for stage fit, and it ends up being a disaster. And they part ways, you know, I mean, the average tenure of a VP of sales is 19 months. So that's pretty common. We see that all the time. Probably the number one trigger event that brings companies to us in that one to 10 million stage. Um, or I, I see often what you had mentioned is they become very, very attached to that that sales process. And I actually think I see this probably more with somebody that has a bit of a sales background. And I probably I know I'm guilty of this personally as well. Um, but they're almost so attached to that uh, that that sales process 
they want to be involved in all of those deals, which as we all know, a lot of times the biggest deals that CEO is almost always going to be involved, even as the company becomes much, much larger. But it's it's almost like they can't pull themselves out of it and really trust the team that they put to, to be able to go. And then some get it totally right, right? And, and they do a good job on, on getting through that. But those are probably the, the most common scenarios that I see in particular. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Those those are, you know, those are, I think, some interesting uh, interesting realizations that maybe some who haven't been there before don't really know until probably afterwards, if you're in one of the mindsets, one or the other. And when what you were just talking about is, is a lot of like, you know, you're always trying to prevent problems. So how do you, how do you go forward while trying to keep a little bit of a preventative mindset in place? And a lot of times that's tough, especially in that zero to one, when it's often like hurry and go and the whole mentality of fail fast, fail forward, go fast, break things, whatever you hear is that's one of the, that's one of those things where you got to look in the mirror and see, you know, am I the problem? And sometimes the solution isn't clear, but I like those two minds, like those two experiences is you're, you're either going to fall on one or the other and recognizing that what, uh, what James, what you said earlier is what works today or what works into the zero one is not, is not probably not, or is not necessarily going to work in the one to five or the one to 10. So having that, having that awareness to, to say, okay, we got it right then. Now we need to, to change and, and to pivot. And I think that's a good time to really focus in on kind of the core question of, of the podcast is you know, rethinking revenue. And I like talking to CEOs. And I think you bring an interesting perspective here, not only being a CEO and a founder of your own company, but being in the, in the sales leadership, revenue leadership roles in the past of uh, you know the perspective that you have, and being a service provider to startups, it provides a, another world of perspective. So, you know, think about a time it, it, it can be here, flash growth. It can be in the past, but uh, think about a time where you kind of had that awareness, where you had to look in the rearview mirror and see what was happening in the past. And can you point to a particular time where you've had to think differently about what the future looks like? Yeah. So, so some. If I'm hearing you, the the question is what. Um... When did I have to look at this totally different than how I looked at it before? And, and essentially, what was that, and what were the results of that? Is that right? Well, more so the the ability to look at what's happening and realize you got to change gear, you got to adapt, you got to pivot, you got to what what's working, what was working isn't necessarily working now, and we got to we got to change gears and go forward a different way. Yeah. So I, I got an example of this, um, and it's it's funny, and I don't think I don't. And, and so obviously we've known each other for a long time. I don't think you've ever heard the story. But uh, when this was a, a few years ago, this was when I was in a VP of sales role and we were coming to year end and we had released, uh, we, we had to get 200 uh, insurance agencies onto this platform in 30 days in December. So to, to, to finish off the year. Now, to give a little bit of context on that, we only had about 10, 15 agencies on there at this point. And uh, the directive came down, we've got to get 200 of these. So, you know, of course, my first thought as a sales leader is, okay, well, that's an impossible goal. There's absolutely 0% chance we're, we're going to hit this. <laughs> yeah. um, and as you can imagine, there was a pretty significant bonus attached to this, to not, not just uh, leadership, but everybody on the team had a pretty significant bonus attached uh, to hitting this. And so I had to look at this. It was like, okay, well, how we've been doing this, clearly, if we've got 10 to 15 a date, there's, a, there's no shot we're going to hit this goal. So but we got to give it a shot. And it was important for more reasons than outside of just that bonus. Uh, we had new competitors coming into the market uh, where we needed to make a splash in this. And just as a kind of a where we're at on how we were going to funding, how we're going to fund and then ultimately exit the business, 
we had to prove that we can operate within this market specifically. Um, and so we took a look and this ended up being, I mean, just a complete all hands on deck. What I mean by that is uh, this was an SMB product that we brought in the enterprise team to work on this, the leadership, if you were a leadership position, you were working on this, everybody was working on this that you could possibly think of because it was so strategically important to the company. And you know, you know me, I'm very process, very, uh, you know, we need to follow this because uh, if we don't, it's going to be a mess and we're not going to be able to scale. We're not going to be able to get insights, all of those things. And given that I just said that we pulled in the enterprise team and everybody else putting on this, it went about exactly how you would think that the thing would start. We're tripping all over each other. We're, you know, at each other's throats, all the, everything that you could think of, like everybody, it was kind of like a Lord of the Flies, everybody for themselves in this situation. And I was like, okay, well, we're, we obviously have no shot at getting this because we can't figure this out whatsoever. And then I, I can't tell you exactly what happened, but it almost just started organically happening because it was such a team goal to be able to hit this. Everybody started migrating and just working on what they are the best at, whether that they were naturally better at prospecting, whether they are naturally better at closing, working partnerships, working on large deals that can get a number of these at once. Everybody, we really started to gravitate and assign those things based off of what were somebody's biggest strengths in that particular area. And it worked. We started to get real traction on that. And of course, you got to remember, this is December. So we're running up against the holidays and everything else. And, you know, we're starting to see we're like, OK, we're over 100 agencies. This is, we've got a real shot at this thing. And, you know, like with a sales goal, when you feel that that goal's in range, you start going oh, really yeah. hard at it. If you don't think it's going to be there, like that's like the. Curse of a sales goal. If it's too high, forget it. No one's going to do anything yeah. about it. It's not worth your time. But once that thing was in range, we were like a dog going after a steak, just salivating over that thing, right? And uh, so we did this. We turned it up. We're working on the weekends, everything else, all the things that you could think of. Um, and we hit that. We actually ended up coming close to almost 300 agencies that we put on the wow. platform. And I I mean, I would tell you, like, I was blown away. And when we, like, again, we first started, uh, we first started this, I'm like, this is a disaster. Like this is going to be impossible to clean up. We're going to burn so many bridges. And the reality is none of that happened. Um, we cleaned it up pretty quickly. Uh, ended up hiring a, a full enterprise or a full SMB team right after that uh, because we started. We we went in. We made a footprint with within the market, uh, and it worked. I just and it made me just think of things so differently. Um, you know, Paul Graham talks about from Y Combinator. You know, in startups, sometimes you have to do things that don't scale. That was very much that. And it just changed my entire mindset. And sometimes you can you can take on those swings and do things differently in order to accomplish a goal. And sometimes you don't have a choice. Uh, if we would have went the traditional way, you know, the more scalable way, the way that I wanted to, I don't think we would hit that goal. Wow, that's I think that's a, that's insane on a couple different levels. But I think this is what what you're showing, and I'm sure other companies have done this. Is that insane is still possible? And I love the the call out about. Once you're in the momentum, or once you're in the in it, and you get some momentum, that fuels a whole different kind of energy. I think you see this oh, yeah. in in sports. I think you see this in any kind of like camaraderie, uh, where you're just like, I hear this with coders, right? Coders and developers, where they're in the, they're in the zone, they're in the zone. Let them go. Yeah. Don't disturb them. Don't pull, don't let let them go. And I think that says a lot. the The astonishing part, in my opinion, in in hearing this, you know, I'm sure there's a lot more details, but an outsider looking in is where in the realm of possibility did did was that considered at the levels above you of 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 that? So, can you talk a little bit on like where where that thinking and how you had to align your thinking to the people above you at that time who imposed the goal and and how that journey looked? 
Oh, hell of a question. You know, when, whenever you're working at startups, right, and, and, and so it gets talked about quite a bit. It's like, well, as a VP of sales, you need to set the forecast and, and you need to tell, you know, the CEO and everybody else what that forecast is. And there's a lot of truth to that, right? You need to be able to, uh, you need to be able to look at the numbers, make an educated guess on what those are going to be. Because in the earliest stages, you know, especially series A through C, it's just not going to be that predictable. So you're taking a guess at what that's going to be. But the reality is this. Your numbers are largely getting pushed down based on what's going to make you competitive going into that next round. Or if you're close to exit, if you're a private equity portfolio company as opposed to a, a venture uh, capital portfolio company, you're looking at that three to five year exit timeline. And where are you around there? And where do you need to be to be competitive to have uh, to hit the right multiples for those? So those ultimately, in my opinion, dictate. Should they do that? Probably not. Is that changing? I think that is changing quite a bit now. You know, looking at uh, true cash flow numbers as opposed to just top line growth, I think it's changed quite a bit. But over the past ten years, that's really not been the case, and this was very much in that in that realm. So that was a number that was going to be meaningful for what we needed to hit in order to get there. You know, and I would say that number really was was derived from an art and a science on. Hey, if you guys hit this, this is really a big deal. So much so, we're going to attach a sizable bonus to uh, to hitting this. And we know it's going to be really tough, but if you can do it, this is pretty significant. Right, right. And it sounds like, uh, Callum, that you got there uh, without leveraging the scalable methodology that you had wanted to implement. Right. When I think about the organization that you're in, I, th I think of uh, whether you're talking about, I think about the difference between investing in and celebrating heroes versus systems. Right. So or heroes and systems. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you were just it was a hero focus for a month. Let's just let's just build this thing out. The, the challenge I see in organizations and there really isn't for me a pattern at which this shifts. I've been in I've been in venture backed businesses doing 40 million where everything's getting restructured. VPs are still being fired. There are no systems. It's still a bigger team of heroes. You know, organizations never kind of break out of that hero worship. And they never move toward or take a long time to move toward those systems. It can become seductive, right? Oh, if, yeah. we, if we had 15 people do 300, maybe we can have 100 people do 1,000. And unfortunately, it doesn't scale like that. Organizations become far less effective the larger they get, unless yeah. they're supported by those systematic approaches. Yeah. So fortunately, we had good systems going into it. It was just never going to support this uh, free for all of everybody going into it. And I was very clear when it was like, okay, we're going down this route that here are the landmines we're going to run into. And we ran into all of them. And it was very clear that this type of method was not sustainable. Um, it, it just, it, it, it wouldn't have, it would have been a bad customer experience. Uh, of course there would have been attrition on the team just in general. Um, but to get to this point, um, it, it was, it was good enough, but they saw the need real fast to get this thing cleaned up and uh and put back in order so fortunately that groundwork was was laid ahead of time and leadership believed that i mean they understood that that's what it was and that it this was uh this was going to be more of a blip on the radar as opposed to something that's going to be very consistently be uh be able to be executed on yeah yeah well so let's talk about your clients in general how do you help if we're if we're we have a listener here who's thinking about look hero worship is all i do right i hire the best we i let them go do their thing and I just, and it's worked and it's going to continue to work. How do you help someone think about what's coming, right? The crisis that will eventually come or 
or it would be a mistake to assume that eventually the crisis is going to occur? So that's a good question. And, I, and I, it's funny. Um, so uh, Dan Mangus of Root Insurance was just on the podcast. Out of pure coincidence, why it's top of mind, it's getting uh, released this Thursday. And I only say that because this is a guy that's seen intense scale, right? Root was a very large company. Prior to that, he was at Braintree, very large company. And, and he was talking about him when he's looking at, and, and he's in the early stages again, and he's thinking, he goes, I know what challenges are going to be there. Um, he goes, I know when we start to scale this thing, these are the challenges that we're going to have. And he goes, I've got to actively remind myself to focus on the problems that we have now versus those problems that are going to come later. And I thought that was such a good way of saying it. And that's really the way that we look at it. We look at it from the perspective of we know where they're trying to go. We've been in the shoes of uh, we've been where they're trying to go. But we also know those problems where if they don't solve these problems now, that they're not going to be able to get to that point to solve those problems that are going to be coming later. Uh, and so much of that is how do we guide you through these problems? How do we point you in the right direction? Because a lot of times, as I'm sure you guys know, a lot of times they've got they've got a good idea on the things that they need to do. It's when and where do I do these? Um, and really that when, what problem should I be working on now and what order in order to, to get through that? So that's a lot of what we're helping them do. Here's the number one priorities that you need to be able to work on now. Here's how you accomplish this. Here's how you solve those problems. And let's get our hands dirty and get it done. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I, you know, since you've been doing this for a while, I mean, one of the things that I look for from a practitioner, you know, is, is that systematic approach to solving my problem, right? Have you gotten there and developed it? And I wonder from your, from your experience, it sounds like a lot of the times you're helping folks in a very bespoke way, right? Every, you know, we're bringing core, we're, we're developing solutions that are tailored or unique to your business. Uh, but do you, are there some core um, or is there a pattern that you've identified that allows you to systematize your approach and mm -hmm. ask key core questions or deliver or look at core deliverables in, in some sort of order that, again, a listener can take away with them? Yeah, I mean, I think the number one thing is who's your ideal customer profile? That's where it all starts. Who's your ideal customer profile? Where do they hang out? What's on their mind? How do they buy? And, and knowing that front to back, because that's where you're going to create your messaging. That's where your sales process is going to come from. That's what's going to map out your, your buyer's journey by aligning that to them. And anything that you can think of stems from first understanding that. Um, and then the rest becomes pretty easy. Hey, Kelly, real quick, because this is a really, this is very really key for both Ed and, and myself, this idea of ideal customer profile uh, and the buyer and the buying center. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for me, the, the shifts that occur in growth, right, those segment, the segmented kind of way that organization can scale really has a lot to do with that, that ICP, that ideal customer profile and the buyer persona, right? And it, for example, if we, if we get to stay the first stage and we're able to establish initial product market fit, in other words, we've identified a problem that we can solve, great. Mm -hmm. Now we go out and get that initial round of funding and now we have to double revenue in the year. And all of a sudden, we've got to make an ex a decision about whether or not we're selling uh, what we have for a big enough price, right? If, mm -hmm. Because the only way we're going to hit that that revenue numbers by increasing our pricing, which means finding a buyer that's big enough to spend more. Now, all of a sudden, you're moving from that smaller initial stage customer who bought us to one that we don't really know. It's a, maybe a large organization, bigger challenge, but the buying, but the buying decision should be bigger, and that's what's going to we're going to use now to to uh, get us that next level of growth and then that next level of funding. So it seems to me that oftentimes those larger goals can disrupt the things that we think we know, and I wonder. If that's common in your in your business and how you help folks think through that, that very specific challenge. 
Yeah, and and if I'm hearing you, the evolution of what customer that we're going after as our company yeah. gets larger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going upstream is 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 so. You know, I think a lot of people think it's just you just go upstream. Okay, we're an SMB company. Yeah. We're just going to go get an enterprise client. The right. challenge is, even if you get that enterprise client, if your product is not ready to support an uh, enterprise client, forget it. It's going to suck up all of your resources. Let me put it this way. At best, it's going to suck up all of your resources. Um, and it's going to be a nightmare until you get through it. At worst, you're just going to, it's just going to be a complete disaster. And it's going to prevent you, depending on how influential that client is, from getting into the enterprise um, at the speed that you want. Does that mean you're dead in the water? No, it's just going to be a pain in the ass. It's just going to be a big pain. So for me, it's all about doing those customer interviews um, and meeting with those customers that you have as you're starting to go up market, having those uh, those persona interview questions, right? Understanding how their challenges are different, how their buying process is different. It's all the same fundamentals, but you're starting to one of the best ways that I've heard this before is, and I, I wish I could attribute to his name, but you guys may know uh, once I say it, but you've the best salespeople, and I think this applies as well to a sales organization, but the best salespeople know their customers so well, they could be a consultant to them in what they do. They could hire, they know it well enough that they could hire them to be a consultant to them. And you have to know that at every stage as, as, as you go up and make the proper iterations to your ICP. Because in your ICP, your ideal customer profile, you'll start to have tiers of that. This is our tier one ICP. This is our tier two based on, on, on where we're at. Yeah, that's a that's a great call out. And I don't, I, I feel like I've heard that before. I couldn't, I'm the same way. I couldn't attest to it. But uh, that reminds me a lot of the challenger sale and some of the mm-hmm. things that are talked about there of how do you become this challenger? And it really is understanding the, your, your buyer and understanding their decision-making process. And I think the analogy that they use in the book is sit on the same side of the table as your prospect instead of on the other side of the table. And don't look at this as a tug of war. Look at this as let's sit together and operate from the same side and figure out. So I, I, I like that call out. And that is that's is important for not only sales teams to know, but the leaders of the sales teams, whether it's the CEO that's leading the team or whether it's a VP, a director, whatever, a sales leader. To know and really understand that ICP, I like I like the analogy. I've I've mentioned this to a couple sales teams in the past, and uh, it seems to resonate. Which is, it's a lot like when the FBI profiles a criminal. Is they have a profile in the beginning, and as they collect more evidence, that profile gets more specific and more specific and more specific. Mm. And the same thing is with an ICP. You start out selling something you don't really know, and it's it's like who who do I feel like is going to buy my product more than another? And sometimes it's shooting a dart on a dartboard and Sometimes it's not, but over time, at least put something together, experiment, and look at what you're doing and see what works, tweak, and then keep going. And eventually, you'll, you'll make a better profile. And that's exactly what the P is, right, in ICP. And, and that can continue to go. And exactly like what you said in going up market is that's just not a crapshoot. That's just not something you say, oh, I'm going to try and sell Microsoft today. And, uh, you know, let's go put a plan together to go figure out who at Microsoft we can call to buy our product. So I, I do like that analogy and, and try to being being thoughtful and methodical about that. So in that in that same breath, the you know if it starts kind of there at the ICP and starts expanding into the personas, expanding into the messaging, and it, you know, looking at that as it as it relates to your previous point where you had to, you know, go into two hundred get two hundred agents on the platform. So in that same breath, were there how were those thoughts in your side of 
who are we going to go after? Are we just going to go spray and pray? Are we still going to find the ICP or find the messaging? Or are we at this point just throwing caution to the wind and we're just going to try everything? So how did you execute that in that timeline? And how true did you stay to, to the ICP and to the messaging of that? Or were you just like, fuck it, we got to go? <laughs> uh, answer is D, all the above. Uh, but uh, <laughs> right. but to, to answer that question, a, a couple things that we had, and this is going to get into, this could potentially get us down some side topics too. But um, a lot of people there had industry experience. And I'm not always, I am not a, a I think industry, industry experience can help, but I think, you know, I'm a big believer in have, find the right characteristics first. And if they have industry experience, it's a bonus. But we were fortunate in this regard that a lot of those people had on the team had industry experience. So they knew they had a pretty good feel in what those agencies were. That being said, from a RevOps perspective, we were still teeing up the, the different leads. Um, we had not to that point blanketed the country. So we had assumptions on what we thought were going to be the agencies that were going to sign up the most, those assumptions ended up proving wrong, which actually I love that FBI example that you mentioned because we very much did exactly that. We thought that it was going to be um, agencies that were had matched the profile of, uh, without getting into the weeds too much from an insurance perspective, but essentially uh, agencies, right, independent agencies can write with, let's say, an unlimited amount of carriers, but typically they stick to two or three. So the ones that we had integrations with, we thought those would be the ones that they would be the most interested in buying. Seems natural. We fit the profile. Our our product fit the profile of their company. And so it seemed to make a total sense. We tried that first. Didn't work. What we found was it was actually agencies that um, wanted access to carriers that they couldn't get on their own, but they could get through us. So we had something that they wanted that we didn't even realize that what it would be. So once we found that, then we started to say, so for example, a lot of this was, it was in particular as a carrier that would do business in areas that were, that uh, that insurance was very difficult to write. So think like the borough of Manhattan, as you can imagine, that has a lot of claims from an insurance perspective. We had a carrier that had no problem writing there. So we pushed into Manhattan really hard, sold a ton of them. Did the same thing in other areas that you think would be similar, like Florida, right? You've got Florida, coastal, and stuff. Yeah. exactly right. Um, and so that's what we ended up doing. So we evolved to that. Uh, we made our assumptions. It was fortunate that we had people with industry experience, so we could make educated guesses faster. Um, when we had people say, "Hey, looks like this carrier could potentially be a good fit here because of this," we push in there, test it, and when it worked, then we doubled down. Um, we really doubled down on that. Um, and it's funny, I, I learned this quote recently from Charlie Munger said that the fundamental algorithm of life is doing more of what's working. Well, we did that to the T. We just doubled down on what was working and it worked. Until it doesn't. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's right. exactly right. <laughs> that right. reminds me of the whole uh, Mike Tyson, like, Everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Until you get punched in the face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's 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 really that's really true. And, I, and so, Kellen, I want to uh, round this up, round this conversation out with a uh, another kind of like with an expansive type question here. So, you know, we we when I asked you kind of what's what what was an example of of a pattern that you follow, the first thing you went to was the, the ICP and understanding you know that buyer persona. And we also now we're talking about how that can change based on. The goals in the organization and we know it can also change just based on competitors that come into the space changing buying habits all that stuff uh markets become can be rich they can also die they die away um and what i loved about the comment was that you focused on sales understanding the icp and buyer persona and to me that's critical because the salesperson has to 
qualify anyone who comes, comes in the pipeline to better understand whether or not someone they should be spending time with, right? The pipe, mm -hmm. pipeline health, it's not about filling the pipe. It's, it's about making sure that the time you're spending selling is with the, the people who are the, have the highest potential to close. Otherwise, you have a very inefficient pipe, and now your sales force is two to three times larger than, than it should be because of the inefficiency of how they're executing. And oftentimes, sales will point to, well, it's because of our marketing team, right? I'm just responding to the folks that they're sending me. Sometimes that's an excuse, but sometimes they're right, right? So we think about, when we think about creating scale, we also think about the go-to-market strategy. And I know that you focus here as well, you know. We tend to, based, whether it's my bias or whether it's because it's true, we think that it, you know, if we can really understand the evidence behind how buyers make decisions based on the a thoughtful, thoughtful experience of the sales team, then we can communicate that insight back up to marketing and branding. And marketing and branding can do a better job of targeting not just markets and not just companies, but the buyers, right, mm -hmm. who are ready to change. And they can move those through the marketing funnel and into the sales pipeline. And I wonder if I wonder what your experience is there and how you help organizations think about that. Yeah, and actually, and before I answer that, I'll even add, I agree with every single thing that you just said there, and I would add the product team as well, right? The product team also, mm -hmm. like one of the biggest things that I've been a part of and I've seen, and when I've been a part of these organizations, we've actively worked on uh, fixing this, but um, those ICPs will either live with product, they'll live with marketing, or they'll sit... Um, undocumented typically in the sales team. The sales team just has the tribal knowledge of what this ICP is based on, I, if I see this prospect, I know I've got a good chance at closing them. And that's more of a gut feel. It really needs to be those three teams being in total sync with each other because they really are. In a startup, and, and to answer your question, one of the ways that I look at this is, what does our communication look like between our sales teams, our marketing teams, and our product teams? Engineering as well, but those three are really kind of tied at the hip on this, especially in the early stages, because you need the feedback from what you're getting to go to the product team. Whether the product team or the marketing team is owning a lot of those customer interviews, when they get those customer interviews, those can't sit in a silo within that department. Those need to be actively spread out to each department. Whether you're doing a monthly meeting to review those most recent customer interviews. If you want to put it together in a Notion database, whatever that might be, there has to be excellent cross-functional communication. So to that point, um, when you're when you're building the executive team, there's got to be, there, everybody has to be crystal clear on what are your roles, what are your responsibilities? And one of the best exercises that we ever went through, because we were having a, a number of communication issues at one of the companies was we went through an exercise where we listed what we believe our roles and responsibilities are and what we believe every executive on the executive team's roles and responsibilities are. And then once we shared that with everybody, we realized there was some big discrepancies. What we thought somebody was responsible for and what they thought they were responsible for and what they thought I was responsible for didn't align. And then once we went through all that and had alignment, that made a big deal. But that starts at the top. If those teams aren't... Uh, actively communicating each other and everybody working towards one goal, it's going to be a big problem. Yeah, the siloed effect. Right? Mm -hmm. We like to say that when you knock down a silo, you create a pipeline. And uh, if we can do that you know, at the, uh, with the go-to-market go team, the entire revenue team, then you can, you can really um, create some great headway, great, yeah. great success. Consider that one stolen with attribution. I like that, uh, <laughs> I like that, uh, that uh, silo with it, the man. pipeline. Go for it. Yeah, the, you know, the, the, the role responsibility when you, when what you talked about of kind of calibrating with everybody and making sure because assumptions can absolutely run wild and it's not negative assumptions. It's just like, 
I just thought that's how it was. And maybe it was at one point and it changed, but either way, having that calibration and that pulse check, especially as you're growing a company and adding more resources, adding more positions, that absolutely gets money. So I, I really like that call out. The other thing that I, I, I think I've learned more from you over the years, as you've talked about this in this area, is around customer interviews and the, the importance of them. And it's not so much that it's a task or an initiative, or no, that it's not an initiative. It's more of this should be a task, a recurring task that happens at certain intervals with different customers and same. And there's a lot of things there when, when you're starting. And, and starting that is such an important part because your customer changes as you, the stage of your company changes, as the breadth of your product changes. And what worked for a small company, now all of a sudden you have a Goliath product. I think a good example is Gong. And when they were starting off, they were they were selling to very, very small sales teams. And arguably, they're now better suited for larger sales teams. They have a bigger price tag because they're doing a ton more stuff. And as you evolve the product and you continue to innovate and develop, that's even more important as you starting start to add positions like product teams. And not every company starts with a product team. And it is the CTO or the engineering that owns it. And sometimes that doesn't doesn't go over so well. And then it shifts to marketing. And then it's so anyway, those are two great call outs when you keep an eye on the customer of uh, doing those interviews, especially at different stages of the company. So thank you for that. And uh, and that'll be that'll be great, I guess, for the listeners to kind of take away is is really those two things, the clarity and role responsibilities as you grow, as well as keeping an eye and focus on those customer interviews. So we'll we'll move to wrapping this up, Callum. This has been great. I know we can we talk shop a lot and we could probably mm-hmm. talk and banter about a lot of this stuff. But uh, thank you for your time. This has been great. We'll we'll close this out by putting you on the spot a little bit. And you know, that if you think about this time where you were asked to perform the impossible. I imagine there are different degrees of that that most, if not every, entrepreneur in a growing company is going to face uh, an impossible goal that they don't think is reality. So is there a piece of advice or something you want to share with entrepreneurs who either are experiencing this today or may potentially experience the impossible goal? Uh, Anything that you want to share with them to give them a piece of advice on how to help them bear that challenge a little bit better? Ooh, deep question. Um, So here's what I'd say. You know, and, and, you know, I talked about this earlier, but we, we primarily talk with founders on, on the podcast and, you know, and, and I, and I think of, I, I would go back to the story of a, of a company I didn't move forward with. And I really was passionate about the idea. I love the idea behind it. I would, I wouldn't have the traditional background to go forward with that. Um, and I, and I talked with a bunch of people really early on in that. And everybody said, well, I think you're too late to this party. And I don't think it makes sense that you do this and all these different reasons as to why not to do it. And I didn't do it. And I totally regret doing that because not within, I think it was maybe a year later, a company that was uh, was getting this thing started about the same time that that we were looking at this. I think they raised a, the 50 or $60 million Series A. So I was like, the idea was right. Um, and I listened too much to what everybody else's opinions were. And I took that as hundred percent truth. But the reality is if you're starting a business, it's already super hard. The odds are already against you. And if you're so passionate about that idea that you want to do it anyway, take the swing. Um, like everything that's been, that's good. That's been created. Somebody else, somebody's had to come up with something so ridiculous that to get them through all the hurdles, just to get the business going. And if it's a really big idea. More people are going to tell you that you're wrong than you're right. But if you firmly believe it, 
it's probably worth going down that path regardless. So that's what I'd say. Uh, if you're going to found a company anyway, you probably got some sort of screw loose. So might as well do it. <laughs> there you go. It's kind of like I got a buddy that used to say that if you're a goalie in hockey, you already got a screw loose because why do you want pucks flying at you all game long? So you got to be a little twisted to be in that position anyway. So I, I definitely see some bridges there to entrepreneurs. So th- thanks again, Callan. This has been a great episode that about wraps it up. Um, well, why don't you kind of close with uh, how can people learn more about you, the company? Uh, I'm sure there's this thing called the internet. You're probably on it. So uh, drop some drop some info that our listeners can can hit you up with. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn um, at Callan Harrington, C-A-L-L-A-N. Uh, the podcast that I mentioned that worked, um, where we interview a lot of founders, um, and executives as well, but a lot of founders on the show and then flash growth, uh, flash growth, one word.com. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again for sharing some insights here. Again, there's some, there's some good meat nuggets here that I think as, as you start to think about revenue growth that, uh, you know, there's never a playbook for it. It never really works like you have it. So thank you for, for sharing and, and being transparent in some of this. And for uh, for everyone listening, it has been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for tuning in. And we will be back.